0: I think the perception of Florida around the world is that it's a place where people want to
1: go.
2: The same way California attracts a certain crowd.
0: Maybe it's because of that famous Bugs Bunny moment where he saws Florida off.
2: Florida's a low-tax multicultural haven.
0: Eating people's faces and having sex with alligators and, you know, whatever you're doing, it's not working, Florida.
2: Caribbean and Latin American influences. We need to find uh, a boogeyman, you know what I mean? Whose fault is
0: it? It's nobody's fault. It's capitalism. Like most people living in Florida, I've got problems with Florida. Tomas, I know you've got some problems with Florida too, right?
1: Yeah, I I got a lot of problems with Florida. Shame on you. You are an embarrassment. You are falsifying information and you are misleading the public. Shame on you. Don't touch (inaudible) social distance. Don't touch. (inaudible) (inaudible) Shame on both of you. Jerry, what about you?
3: I, I'm pretty good with Florida because I don't live there anymore. So I don't have any, no real antagonisms these days.
0: Yeah, way to out us like right away that that one third of our new podcast doesn't live here. Like
3: one third of Florida, I'm from New York. So I'm at, this actually is representation.
1: Gerald Gerald's the control group.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> a lot of like my friends are, like, so I've never read a work of fiction since like high school. Uh, I'm just not interested in it. But being in Florida for four years, I do feel like I lived fiction for a little while, as so I don't really feel the need.
0: Maybe you've been under a rock for the past 25 years or so, and you only think of Florida as a swampy, sunny, middle American vacation getaway, not the throbbing gorged disaster that it's become since the 2000 election. But you feel it just walking outside. We're experiencing more extreme weather every year because we're ground zero for climate change. Between fish kill, red tide, algae blooms, saltwater intrusion from the rising tides, thousands of broken septic tanks, half the state stinks like shit. You can't walk anywhere because the other half is covered in concrete. So the entire state is just a bunch of eight lane highways and freeways connecting strip malls, big box retailers and suburban wastelands. Our infrastructure is crumbling, literally crumbling, collapsing on our heads or falling from out from underneath us like so many sinkholes. While we have beautiful beaches and incredible places like Miami and Key West, you've got to traverse hundreds of miles of the most Bleak, drab American landscape to get there. We are steeped in poverty. People die in the stupidest, most preventable ways every day. Everyone is pissed off. Everyone is armed. There's abject violence around every corner, just waiting to become a snarky national headline the next day.
1: I mean, it's it's pretty bad here. You know, we've the state has been completely controlled by a Republican trifecta, um, and even before that, the Florida Democratic Party. Was you know controlled by the Dixiecrats. They were a conservative Democratic Party, um, but you know since Republicans have taken over, they they basically have run the state as a as a one party totalitarian government that has become increasingly more authoritarian uh, as you know as their their power has been left uh, unchecked, and now you know we have a a pretty wide uh, majority of. You know, Republican senators in, this, in the state Senate. You have a huge spread in the Florida House, you know, 70 something to 40 something Republican Democrats. And of course, Ron DeSantis was filling every single cabinet position with his cronies, you know, people like Manny Diaz as Department of Education or Court Bird, a person that has an actual QAnon flag on his boat, which is the most fucking Florida thing I've ever heard of as the secretary of state, the the person that oversees our election is a QAnon psychopath. You know, so these are the people that are making decisions for us. And then at the local level, you know, the the corruption across the state is unbelievable. I mean, you know, just to illustrate how bad the situation is in Miami-Dade, we just had the county commission approve a stipend uh, for for ex county commissioners for outgoing and retired politicians to that you know uh, <laughs> elected body that's called the county ambassador program and they're basically getting $25,000 a year to do completely ceremonial things like going to ceremonies and cutting ribbons and that's coming yep. from us the taxpayers and it's going to cost us 8 million dollars in total so you know, it's, it's, it's not good. It's not good at all, David.
3: I think people from outside Florida look at Florida. I mean, politically, um, the biggest misapprehension is that it's a purple state. Um, I think because, like, the tightness of the elections um, at the national level, people come away with a perception that it's like half Democrat, half Republican. I'd never seen a Confederate flag until I moved to Florida. I never saw one until I was in my uh, Miami, Florida, uh, which I, was the last place I probably would have expected to see one. And then going up um, with Tomas to Tallahassee, seeing uh, Confederate flags draping a lot of the graves uh, at the state capitol was a little jarring, just assumes that, well, you know, must be some kind of like power struggle between the Dems and the Republicans did not know that the Florida Democratic Party is, is essentially like the New York. Republican Party, where it's like, you know, career rehabilitation for people who failed elsewhere, and now this is going to be their, their new gig. Um, I I did not know that it was essentially like, um, like a, a rump apparatus of a party.
2: We are losing
1: our country because of big tech election interference. Stop the now stop the in three minutes, in three minutes, six-year-old Elian Gonzalez dressed in a t-shirt draped in fiend.
0: Today, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar conspiracy and using it as an entry point for the whole podcast. But why don't we start with exactly who the hell we are? I'll go first. My name is David Quinones. I've been doing journalism in Miami for about 17 years. Most recently, I hosted a dog shit podcast called Bird Road. During that show, one of the people that I met was a young activist working at the Florida Immigrant Coalition at the time, whose general worldview was strikingly similar to my own. Today, he's grizzled, less young, uh, and he's my co-host, Tomas
1: Kennedy. Yeah, man, this place fucking ages you out, but I'm a... I'm a writer, I'm an organizer, uh, just, you know, an advocate here, uh, trying to fight back, put my little grain in the sand against the fucking corruption and bullshit that we're saddled with every day. And I'll pass it over to Gerald.
3: Yes, I met um, Tomas in the early Trump years, actually the very first political, um, uh, I guess not protest, but the very first like, political meeting I ever went to was the uh, PPC meeting with uh, Jeff Weaver um, in the beginning of yeah. 2017. We were we were um, we were resistance bros together. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm still I'm still involved in, you know, a lot of that work. But, you know, by day, I'm a associate producer and a video editor. Um, so uh, when Tomas and, and David said that they were working on this, I obviously like, jumped at the chance to uh, help you know, collaborate and and build this out.
0: So I think the biggest challenge as the three of us embark on this venture is not to just make it be like an episode of Scooby-Doo where every time at the end they pull off the mask and we're like, ha, it was capitalism all along. Even though like, that's kind of hard because a lot of times it it is legitimately capitalism or some some element of it.
3: I I had a... So, I was watching Scooby Doo in 2019 uh, when I was recovering from a trip to urgent care. And all the villains are like guys who dress up as like goofsters in order to like haunt and drive down the price of a piece of real estate to do like some kind of land swindle. Yeah, some sort of land swindle. It's always a land swindle. Yeah. If Scooby Doo isn't set in Orlando, I don't know where it's set.
0: (laughs) 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 It's like the, 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 um, what? Just think of like all the the abandoned theme parks and of, yeah. like of the of the abandoned theme parks. My favorite is the um, Jesus Land. Yeah, and the Jesus Land. Uh, like that was one where they like specifically like drove the value of that into the into the dirt. And um, now you drive by and there's just like a uh, like a, a falling apart Roman Coliseum on the corner on the edge of I four and
1: so it's not operating. That I think board?
0: is probably like as easy to. explain. I, I don't think it works anymore now. Oh. I, I drove by it it looks very derelict yeah um i mean maybe there's like rogue groups of like former roman centurions who have made their um their homes there yeah, the and, rest i mean ends. it could be affordable housing yeah i mean those people that's precarity work if you're a uh, an actor at jesus land or whatever i'm calling it jesus land it was probably called something else i'm sure it wasn't called jesus land
1: yeah i was gonna say if it's open If it's open, we should definitely do an episode out of there.
0: You know that Bill Maher did a scene in one of in his movie, his like, his like insufferable atheist movie, atheism movie. He 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 went there and like made fun of all the people there. (laughs) (laughs) He
3: watched their like passion show or whatever, right? Right. Yeah, they did. They did a
0: rendering of, of Passion of the Christ and. He's was he just looking at the camera doing a gym from the office every five seconds, like Dude, <laughs> that was the that was when I realized that Bill Maher is
3: basically Squidward. Like his whole ethos is if only people were smart like me instead of stupid like
1: the way they are. That's a good take, actually. He is like Squidward. Yeah, yeah he's got he strong Squidward, Squidward
0: positioning. Yeah. yeah. Um for me, because if, if there's anything I want to do about this podcast, it's make it about me. Um so for me. In the pantheon of all the problems that Florida men, Florida man like myself have to face. My biggest one right now is the fact that I'm in danger of losing my biggest asset all because, uh, and it's not my ass, but I could also lose part of that as well. All because of an interlocking system of free market failures, failures to adequately provide something that should be one of the most boring milquetoast afterthought financial transactions that there is homeowners insurance. So we've talked about this a little bit. Um, The homeowners crisis, uh, homeowners insurance crisis. And like the reason that we're using this, even though a big chunk of Florida are renters, it literally affects everybody. And it's kind of like the ideal when you look at it through the, when you look at Florida through the lens of this one issue, it's like everything that's wrong with the state you can find in this one issue, like kind of baked into it. Right. So our story begins right in front of my house. It's an early evening in April. I strolled out to the front of my house to open the mailbox inside, among circulars, junk mail, and bills. I found a letter from my homeowner's insurance company, Sarasota based Centauri specialty insurance. I opened the letter addressed to me and here's what it said. Dear policyholder, the
3: insurer, the insurer hereby serves notice that this policy in accordance with the terms and conditions, will not be renewed and all coverages will cease at 12.01 a.m. standard time at the insured location on the policy's expiration date indicated above. Prior to your expiration of your policy, please contact your agent regarding continuation of your coverage. The letter also explained why I was being dropped.
0: Reason for non-renewal exposure management. Exposure management? What the fuck is that? Now, in normal times, I wouldn't give this a second thought. It's just property insurance. One of the most mundane financial transactions that someone can engage in. You don't even have to write a check. It just comes out of your escrow account. But these are not normal times. The best property insurance companies are the ones you never have to actually think much about. They blend into the background of your life. In Florida, you keep their information handy during hurricane season, especially during hurricane season. So I set about trying to find a new insurance carrier because there's so many out there, right? but I wasn't the only one doing that. And I'm gonna drop in a news clip here um, that I have cut out. There were zero options on the open market for me, which meant I could qualify for the quote-unquote insurer of last resort here in Florida, which is called citizens property insurance. My broker started my application and came back really quickly with bad news. See, back in 2019, I had a leaky pipe that busted in my ceiling. It discolored my walls in the hallway and it caused damage in our guest bathroom. So we, like idiots, assumed this was a good situation to use fucking property insurance, the stuff that we pay thousands of dollars for. But that was a bad move. In February of this year, citizens, the insurer of last resort, passed a rule internally inside their company, not publicly, stating that it would not accept new policies from homes with two or more non-weather water-related damage within 36 months of each other. So that last resort insurer uh, rejected me. Now, I'm in hot water with my mortgage lender because they're threatening to put me in something called force-placed insurance, which is just really a policy that that protects the mortgage company, not the homeowner. My premium's went from 1900 bucks a year to 4000 for something that now is can barely be described as insurance. And this all comes at a time when we're in the middle of uh what is starting to become an active tropical storm and active hurricane season. It's not hard to see this development, which threatens pretty much every homeowner and every person too, because if you're a renter, you're subject to your landlord's homeowner insurance. Um, it's hard to see this as 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 something that's anything more than a threat for anybody who can't afford that extra two thousand dollars a year to pay to their insurance company. In the context of home and rental uh, of the of this larger home and rental affordability crisis that's been ongoing here, pretty much since, since the beginning of the pandemic um realtor.com just named florida the least affordable state to live in in miami renters pay 60 percent of their income to housing you can consider the affordability crisis sort of parallel with the wage crisis where typical working class floridian salary continue to be stagnant despite the influx of high and ultra high net worth individuals which are really the people that are that are moving down here they come here with uh with certain expectations expressly. They come here because of our lack of regulatory environment, because of uh, our lack of worker protections, our lower taxes, no state income tax, although Floridians end up paying more through other avenues than almost anybody else does. But we love to point out that we have no state income tax. We also love to lie to ourselves about our economic opportunities. Republicans like Governor Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott um, they regularly hold these press conferences where they tout Florida's low unemployment rate and the addition of more jobs to the economy, despite the fact that those jobs often don't materialize. And we also learned in the beginning of the pandemic that Florida's unemployment rate is mostly fiction because it's based off of a flawed, fucked up, intentionally malfunctioning unemployment system that doesn't count everybody and is in, to this day difficult to, to to use. Did you guys know that the Florida unemployment website has bankers hours, the website, like when you go to the actual website to, to it, it's only open from like 8 AM to 6 PM.
1: Yeah,
0: I've never heard of a fucking website. That's not open. That has like hours
1: to the guess.
0: any effort to point out these inequities is met with a conservative rejoinder about Florida's freedom. Despite the fact that we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the nation and are home to some of the most punitive petty, overly aggressive police departments and sheriffs in the in the country, you think you're free here? Try being being black or brown and walking through a white suburb in Jupiter. Try setting up a lemonade stand with your kid on a weekend in Destin. Try enjoying any recreational drug, legal or otherwise, while not being rich. See how free you are. We are unsurprisingly near the top of housing insecurity, and guess what happens to the families and uh, people who find themselves without roofs over their heads? In every every objective metric, Florida is one of, if not the most cruel place to be unhoused in the country. Why? Why? Those low taxes mean that there are few protections, no social safety net or programs to cash people when they fall. The lack of state regulatory oversight also means that corporations and, you guessed it, insurance companies can do whatever the fuck they want and they never have to worry about any kind of repercussions. This also facilitates the irony that the state most at risk for the effects of climate change is also the state where corporations can dump pretty much anything in the water without being held to account. But hey, at least there's no state income tax. So you see how this one little topic is kind of a, an allegory. It's an entryway into everything that we think of when we think of the of Florida's dysfunction. Taken together, it feels like a concerted effort to push us all toward the sort of Ida Aachen world economic form reality that we all have heard about on social media, the whole you will own nothing and you will like it. That's like the as a, I'll tell you guys like as somebody who owns a house, as somebody who has a kid in public schools. These are all things that we've talked that we're going to be talking about on the show. Like, that's how it feels. It feels like you're being pushed, like, like the gravity is, yeah, we know that you're used to these specific expectations of life to be able to like have a house and to have a kid go to school and not have to pay like 30 grand to ransom Everglades. Um, but you know what? No, the, the reality is that you're going to end up, uh, you know, having to come out of pocket barely getting by every single month. And, um, you know, life is just basically going to be unaffordable and, and and unsustainable.
3: That was one of the more common stories I would hear of people who moved down to Florida, especially if they'd been there a long time, was thinking they were doing so, giving themselves a leg up or, you know, um, that the cost of living would be low and they'd be able to keep more of the money, their money. And then f- feeling like nothing but the squeeze of trying to make it from one day to the next. Like, I do think that is one of the more common stories you'll hear in Florida, people who came in, in the hopes of like having a better life for themselves and are now feeling trapped, you know, in Florida, like, you know, like flies in amber almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when, you know, I, I first came to Florida back in 2001. I mean, I was a child. But thinking about that, you know, my parents came as immigrants, no papers, you know, no, no real prospects, you know, just trying to make it. And the first apartment that we had was in in North North Beach by, you know, by Manolo's David, which at the time was Lido Buenos Aires. That's where all the Argentinians were fleeing to because, you know, my home country had just gone through. A, a massive economic implosion caused by you know IMF neoliberal policies imposed by the center right government of Carlos Menem at the time, and you know the the, the apartment that we got was four blocks away from the beach, you know and you know it's still a working class neighborhood, but at the time a very working class neighborhood, but very nice, close to the beach, one bedroom apartment, uh with, with like pool everything. It was $650, $650 for one bedroom apartment, four blocks away from the beach. Like that's on- un- It's like- gotta
0: be north. It's gotta be, it's gotta be like, it, probably now if you look at the the estimate for it, it's probably like, if you wanted to just buy that apartment instead of rent it, it's probably a solid like $1.8 million.
1: And even if you wanna rent it, it's probably like at least, at least 1,500. Yeah. No, probably not because it's one bedroom, but at least, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's probably like close to two thousand dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah, over three three times markup. And how can you afford that? I mean, I don't know if you all saw, but one of the solutions coming from the county for the affordable housing crisis is to basically allow homes to set up efficiencies. You know, like break away little studio apartments in their property. Which, you know, it's it's relief, but at the same time, is that their solution that like people, especially people with families are just going to live in like little studio apartments attached to larger single family homes? Are we not going to do anything about the fact that maybe zoning single family homes to suburban sprawl is not like the ideal urban planning, you know, like uh, design. Yeah,
0: these these <laughs> solutions remind me of like the, and I know we've talked about it before, the Marco Rubio plan um, for I I don't even remember what the the the, the um, I guess just general affordability. I can't remember what the context was that he proposed this plan, but his plan his plan was payday loans for your Social Security, yes, where you can basically just take out a payday loan against your Social Security yeah. and. Don't worry about sixty-five-year-old you. I'm sure you'll get it together by then. Yeah, uh, you know everything's going great. By the time you're sixty-five, we'll be over this little hump of you know twenty-first century neoliberal economic uh, degradation. Yeah. But freedom
3: but, is when you live in a pod and you take out a reverse mortgage on Social Security. <laughs> that's when you're free.
0: Reverse pod mortgage. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, it's like nothing is easy anymore. All of these programs that we talk about, like they're all half measures. At most, they're not even half measures. Like they all um, are just betray this huge lack of ideas like of of what to do besides just voting with your feet, right? That's what... Jerry, I'm interested, like do you... Have you seen... There was a trend piece the other day about New Yorkers who tried to do Florida and like at the beginning of the pandemic and only lasted about a year and came back. Have you heard or seen anybody like in that scenario where they said, hell no, that place is too fucked up. It, w- it didn't work out the way that I that I hoped.
3: I mean, a lot of it that I've I've seen are people who were able to get in before um, the price of real estate shot through the roof. Um, people who came in 2018, 2019 that I know are still down there. Like you said, people who went down during the pandemic, expecting you know Shangri-La and you know steaks and shakes and what have you, um, yeah, a lot of them have come back now. Uh, and I do think a lot of it's the sticker shock, like thinking like, oh, there's no state income tax, and like to Tomas's apart, like a apartment example, something that cost six hundred some odd dollars years ago is now triple, if not more than that. And it's hard to feel free when you're paying a
0: 200 300
3: premium on something so it's just not worth it
0: exactly so we're looking for answers and hopefully our next guest will uh our first guest ever in the history of our podcast will help us shed a little bit of light on exactly why we're like this So we wanna welcome the first guest of our first episode here to help us shed light on this property insurance problem the way that we were just talking about it, the deep tendrils that it has across our real estate market, our economy, uh, and how it serves as sort of a foot in the door for this larger conversation of exactly why we are uh, why we are like this. And our first guest is state representative, soon to be Congresswoman, Anna Eskamani. Hey there. Or, or, or Representative Eskamani, welcome.
1: Wow. (laughs) Thanks,
2: guys. Thanks for the promotion.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to walk you. (laughs) So to to
0: um, recapitulate what we were just talking about, uh, I've been dealing with this issue on the front on sort of the front lines myself. My own property insurance in my 1940 Miami's bungalow down here. uh, There's just no market for it. Like, I can't find property insurance. It doesn't exist. For a bunch of various reasons, citizens doesn't want me on their insurance rolls, which we talked about how there's sort of like a perverse incentive structure there where citizens actually doesn't want a whole bunch of people on their uh, on their um, on their roles. Right. So I was wondering if you could maybe start by taking us through behind the scenes of the special session, the special legislative session that was supposed to address this issue. What happened, what maybe went wrong And and how it fell short?
2: For sure. I mean, this is. A crisis is impacting floridians across the state including right here in central florida where i am but especially in coastal communities because let's be real the risk is higher in coastal communities and when the state continues to ignore the impacts of climate change which ironically insurance companies quantify when they're calculating charges and risk Yet the state of Florida ignores it. Um, then you're going to see more and more situations of companies saying "I'm out" because they don't want to navigate the risk in Florida. Um, and also, you see really, really responsible homeowners who are improving their roofs, who are investing in hardening of their homes, that are still getting dropped and or exorbitant rates. So the system is criminally broken. And you know, when you when you're in the legislature, uh, there's so many different stakeholders and profits involved that can really muddy up just the goal of solving the crisis. And the special session that was hosted um, early on in the summer was very much motivated by public pressure, right? So you have uh, Senator Jeff Brandis, who is very much a a pro-insurance kind of a guy. Like if he, his biggest thing is fraud, 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 that Uh, there's the trial bar is to blame. We have to uh, reduce the litigious fraudulent environment. But if you ask the opposing side of that debate, insurance companies are not paying claims. And so people involve lawsuits because they're not getting paid for legitimate claims. And I'll tell you that in my district, we've had tornadoes in the past and there are folks who have are waiting two years to get paid for roof damage. That is legitimate. And is a clear claim. With that said, I, Senator Jeff Brandis actually made the request for a special session through the, the, the legislative approach, which is basically a poll. You, know, you, you petition the state uh, the Secretary of State for a special session. If enough lawmakers agree with you, then a poll is, is triggered. majority of Republicans just ignored the poll. So the call for special session being led by lawmakers failed.
0: That doesn't. That doesn't sound like them. That's so <laughs> yeah. weird.
2: Just pretend like the problem doesn't exist, right? And then uh, the governor feels a lot of public pressure on this because it's a campaign season and he's on the ballot, and this is a clear crisis that are impacting people. So the governor then convenes a special legislative session, and we all go back to Tallahassee. This is in you know late May, and it's pretty clear per usual that. Diverse ideas are not going to be considered that behind the scenes, a bill is being worked on between Republicans and insurance companies, and that will be the main vehicle that progresses forward. And that's exactly what happened. Um, You have a bill in front of you that was crafted by the insurance industry, and the bill sponsor himself says that it might take 18 months to see relief from this bill, if ever, that is a verbatim quote from the bill sponsor on the Senate side who works for the insurance industry. Now, what does the bill do? Now, there, there are parts that um, you know, are, are, are well-meaning. For example, the, um, uh, there's a Homeowners Improvement Fund that has already existed in the past but has not been uh, allocated dollars. And so that fund is getting rebuilt. It's called the um, uh, Safer Home. And the point of that program is to give Floridians uh, extra dollars to harden their homes, but not every Floridian would qualify for it, only those that live in high wind areas, so basically the bottom U of Florida. And despite the fact that we had that special session in, in late May, and, and now we're you know in the fall, that program has not been made available yet. So we're still waiting for its application to open, and at this point, there's just no updates. Um, but other parts of the program, were of the law, were basically a bailout for insurance companies. And there was no guarantee that the dollars insurance companies could apply for um, would be translated to savings. In fact, we filed as Democrats multiple amendments to require that any insurance company that participates in what's called the RAP fund... Um, that those savings would have to be passed down to consumers. We'd have to physically see that, and all those amendments failed. I also filed an amendment to require that climate change data be collected and implemented to reduce the state's risk, and that also failed. And so um, a key area that would have delivered immediate relief never made it into the bill, and that was uh, an expansion of the CAT fund, Long story short, one of the reasons why property insurance rates are so high is not just because of the, the risk in Florida and the fact that there's just less and less options as more companies leave, um, but also the fact that companies who provide insurance to homeowners buy insurance themselves. And that is called reinsurance. And reinsurance is a global dynamic. Its its rates are based on global risks and I believe it or not, you have companies in Florida that are not only engaged in the insurance market, but also engaged in the reinsurance markets. And one of those companies is State Farm. So State Farm lobbies heavily and donates a lot of money to allow the reinsurance market to continue to operate as it's doing, which is um, unbelievable costs. That get passed incredibly down.
0: predatory too, for, right. for people who don't know what that is, the reinsurance market is you've got your back up against the wall and your your um your lender, your mortgage company is has basically a knife up against your throat and this is what you have to buy.
2: Correct. Yeah, you don't have a lot of options at all. And so uh, all those costs are passed down to the consumers. And if you expand the Cat Fund, the Cat Fund would basically be a public option for reinsurance, if you will. But State Farm doesn't like that because then State Farm doesn't make money. So the Cat Fund never gets expanded to the degree that um, it could. And that would be one way to provide immediate relief to Florida families if it wasn't for companies like State Farm lobbying against it. And so uh, so this bill passes, you know, many of us vote against it. One reason why I also vote against it is not only because I, I don't believe it will deliver relief, but because it strips away some consumer rights, which again, um, consumers who have legitimate claims today are not getting paid. And we shouldn't be making it harder for consumers to get paid. And that's part of what the bill was doing, too. And of course, the governor doesn't sign this bill with a press conference, doesn't sign these bills with a fanfare. He signs them quickly and and quietly with the hopes of no one really realizing what he just did was that he passed a bailout for insurance companies. He did not address reinsurance rates and he actually stripped away consumer rights. And here we are now, um, months later, with the crisis only getting worse.
1: Which is, is so revelatory in and of itself that he didn't sign this with, like, fanfare because this guy literally takes the state plane every other day to some part of Florida to, you know, tout his quote-unquote accomplishments or, you know, just to talk about, like, woke Antifa. Like, if he was proud of yeah. it, he would have definitely...
0: Or to, anou- or to announce jobs from B- Brandon, Florida. Yeah, exactly. Or to exactly.
2: give out Biden bucks and pretend like it's his. Yeah, I mean, if it was a good bill that... that I. Uh... He would have wanted to brag about. He would one hundred percent.
0: So, in, in in the preparation for a different episode of our show, um, I was doing a little bit of studying in in, in Florida history, and um, it struck me this this idea of like the election of nineteen twenty back in, in in Florida was the first election. Rewind a little bit. There was a, it sounds familiar, right? There were economic concerns. There were problems. There was recession on the horizon. There were a lot of not property insurance, but other you know for, for that moment um, types of economic pressures on people and what happened it was the first uh election where black uh citizens of florida were allowed to vote and the more conservative elements of the state government whipped up a lot of anger and animosity and that's how you got in the 1920 the election day ocoee massacre the ma- which is right in your backyard right in the, the 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 state um the the part of the state where that is and I can't help but draw parallels to today, God forbid, not, not the same kind of violence, but the same whipping up of culture issues, of issues that are not really impacting and more really like camouflage for these real economic meat and potatoes issues that people are facing. Uh, we look to our uh, state government and specifically to our, 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 to our governor, and all we see are these, you know, dog whistles and things that are supposed to make us be inflamed or angry against our neighbors or different people who want different things. I, I guess what I'm asking is that must be really frustrating for somebody who's trying to legislate solutions uh, for real practical problems. And and I want to kind of use that as a segue to, to talk more broadly about Florida and about how, how you are, you know, how, how you imbibe that, how you deal with
2: that. It's such a great question, and it's um, it's a constant struggle of trying to just solve problems for everyday people that are not divisive. You know, the property insurance crisis is such a great example. It impacts every person, no matter your party affiliation, no matter uh, who you love, no matter who you worship, like you are impacted by this crisis. And yet Governor Ron DeSantis, in an effort to deflect and project, uh will continuously find reasons to try to get people to be angry and to pit groups against one another even the recent controversy over veterans and teachers in you know the, the state's efforts to make it easier for veterans or veteran partners to you know find work and to be in the field of education you know obviously there are legitimate concerns that need to be met but this effort to pit veterans against teachers is really intentional because you have two different communities that are very admirable in their in their history. And yet here's the governor trying to, to, to pit two groups that have no reason to not like each other to not like each other, right? To, and for us to pick a side, which I'm kind of like, I don't need to pick a side, you know? Like, I think veterans do good work. I think teachers are amazing. Like, there's no reason for me to be agitational at this. But that's his goal, right? It's the same thing with returning citizens. You know, Floridians overwhelmingly voted to restore rights. And then the governor creates his elections police force. The first thing he does is go after returning citizens who accidentally voted, right? So here's another example of him trying to basically pit, pit people against the law. And it's like, there there is absolutely no reason for us not to want returning citizens to have the power to vote. And of course, accidents happen. These are folks that, unfortunately, under Amendment 4, were not eligible to vote partly due to the fact that the legislature created barriers and created confusion. And so now, again, another effort by DeSantis to uh, give off the impression that we want people to break the law. Again, not true, no. but that's his tactic, right? So we're constantly right. trying to solve problems while, while the governor is, is, is fulfilling uh, an agenda of divisiveness and distraction so that people are so caught up you know, in the culture wars that they don't realize... My property insurance is going up. And who's responsible for that? It's not Obama, right? It's not Biden. It's literally the governor because it is the governor's administration. It is the CFO's office, which holds the Office of Insurance Regulation, that approves every single insurance rate increase, just like it's the Public Service Commission, which is appointed by the governor, that approves rate hikes. And so none of yep. this happens in a vacuum. But again, the entire intention of today's Republican Party is to distract, deflect, project, and and that's exactly what DeSantis does, in, in every every statement he makes, in every um, you know press conference he hosts.
0: Yeah, but luckily we have a um, a state utility that that is apolitical and would never interfere with um with with politics. Our state utility, like <laughs> thank, thank God for FPL, right? I mean, they're... right. They're great. Sorry, Tom, uh, Tomas, what were you going to say?
1: Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, you know, like, because I'm looking into buying a home. I want to uh, build some equity or whatever. Um, but, you know, I'm like I'm intimidated by the process uh, because of, you know, the like just the whole process by because of the property insurance crisis and how much it is, you know, what's going to how how it's going to impact my bottom line. Um, you know, I, whether I'm going to be able to like, you know, get my claim paid if something actually happens in my house, all the things that we've been talking about. But I guess my question is, what do you see as the horizon of where this crisis is headed? Like, is the legislature going to tackle this again? And if the legislature doesn't, or if they do, and it's insufficient again, like what's going to happen to homeowners? Like what, what are we, you know, what can we expect?
2: Well, this is the one of the reasons why I endorse Charlie Crist in the gubernatorial race because Charlie, even as a Republican governor, took on State Farm. He took on insurance companies and he helped reduce rates as governor. and And you need someone who is willing to stand up to these companies, not accept millions of dollars from them, which is what Ron DeSantis is already doing. Because um, what the future is going to look like if we don't take action is you're going to see a continuation of homelessness. You're going to see folks who are just not going to be able to uh, hold on a mortgage because in Florida and across the country, having a mortgage is often also uh, connected to having property insurance. And for folks who uh, just can't afford property insurance, maybe it's not required by their bank, they're going to potentially be in harm's way with no means of recovery. And you know, so far, we've been fortunate to not have uh, a recently um, – I uh, aggressive hurricane season, and you know I don't want to. I want to knock on wood because you know it, we've had disasters in Florida's past, and, and of course not only impacting our state but impacting those around us, which has led to climate refugees. But if we don't take action on climate change, situation is only going to get worse, and you're going to see more and more Floridians be unable to make ends meet. And it's not like renting is even a sustainable option these days because the rents also out of control. And Completely so we're. Out of control. Yeah, so we're creating a state where Floridians cannot afford Florida.
0: Yeah, we are. We are the the most uh, as of two months ago. You know, we're the crown on our head. We are the uh, most the, the least affordable state in the union, and right. they, that's pretty impressive.
2: Well, and wages are stagnant on top of that too, and we have a service economy, and so you know we we continuously see politicians that want to keep people poor because it allows them to maintain power. And then meanwhile, uh, you know the the, the middle class and, and even those that are that are more comfortable right like even those that like are upper class are struggling because they they're having ridiculous property insurance increases too so it's very interesting because it is an opportunity to also build coalitions among people like of different socioeconomic backgrounds because again, this issue impacts every single person
1: and Anna um. Just, I don't want to get too like into the weeds or the rail of the conversation, but I think it's it's um, it's um related. So there's like a big fight right now in central of Florida and Orlando over, you know, rent st- stabilization. And, you know, it was like initially successfully like approved by the county, but now a bunch of like landlords and like their corporate interests are litigating against it. Um, you know, uh, can you like talk a little bit about that? Situation.
2: So as we noted earlier, housing affordability is a major issue right now. And of course, like you just said, David, Florida is being marked as one of the least affordable states for its people. And uh, inflation actually is difficult across the country to navigate, but Florida is one of the worst cases and housing costs are the reason. And not only do we just have you know decades of um, of of neglect to this issue. But we have the affordable housing trust funds that have been raided. You have the federal government over time moving away from public housing. And so I do think a lot of local governments, historically speaking, looked towards the federal government to solve the housing crisis. And as the federal government shifted away, local governments all of a sudden realized we have to fill in this gap and we don't have the money to do that. And then the state, as the potential source of funding here in Florida, continuously rated those dollars, and so we we created this this wicked problem that has no quick fix because we need to build up supply, we need to uh, I, uh, go after predatory behavior and we have a generation of folks that are just going to be continuously navigating economic disparities based on so many other variables that again are just uh, cannot be sold overnight and so with that said in orange county we're trying to look at every tool we have in our toolbox and one of them is calling a housing emergency and then giving the voters the opportunity to decide on rent stabilization and this rent stabilization ordinance is very narrow you know it does not apply It, it tries to target more of the corporate landlords um there are many exceptions But the the goal is that you would not be able to increase rent for a year by 10% uh, if it passes. And voters have to decide. And so we have been working on this for years, years. I mean, the first calls for action were back during the pandemic in 2020. And every legislative session, I file policy to make it easier for local governments to pursue such an ordinance. Because I have to tell you, every day we get calls to our legislative office about rent increases and the question people have for us is, how is this legal? And I have to remind Floridians that it is absolutely legal for landlords to increase your rent by this, by any percentage they want. Doesn't make it ethical, but it is legal. And so we're trying to uh, provide some layer of protection, even if it's short term, for tenants. And, And so we finally get to the point where Orange County Commissioners who are majority Democratic uh, vote to approve this measure for the ballot, and then in swoops in uh, the associations, the corporate landlords, who then file a lawsuit. and And again, it's so it's so painful because this is a crisis. It should be treated as a crisis, and and yet those who continuously profit off it. Don't don't want to see anything be done, even even if it's short term, even if it has exemptions, even if it's incredibly narrow. Um, one band aid. They just they think it's too much, and so now you know we're waiting to see if voters will even get the chance to decide on this.
0: So you said that like the division is something that gets sowed between so many groups here in Florida, and you've seen it like kind of play out. I mean, you go from one part of Miami across town to another, and you can feel the cultural. Uh, loggerheads that you're at with people who have the same background as you in a lot of cases, who have the same, you know, we're our cousins of yours in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering if maybe like maybe more division is what we need actually. Like, because I, you, you, the, you go, you go to the cow that has milk, right? And the cat, the part of this state that has the milk that all the companies and the corporate interests are after. It's not Wakulla County or Leon County or Jackson or whatever. It's Miami. It's Central Florida. It's Fort Lauderdale. It's Tampa. And all I see, and maybe you tell me if I'm being divisive myself here, but all I see is like a line on I-4 that we could just like separate and elect Anna Eskamani as our governor of South Florida. Like maybe we just need to cut cut the state in half or something like that. I don't know. But my, my point is, why does it always seem like it's our district. It's your district. It's right. our regions that are getting subjugated in these situations. We're the ones that bear the brunt of it. We're the ones that 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 are the giver. I hate to, and I hate to use that kind of language, but it's true. We are the giver economies. We're the engines of these of this state that right. everybody that has become so high profile that everybody wants to move here, and it's always us, you know, getting screwed over.
2: Right, right, time and time again. I mean, the challenge is that. You know, Governor Ron DeSantis is now removing local elected officials uh, who give off any type of impression of challenging him. And that's creating a chilling effect. You know, the fact that Governor DeSantis is, is just removing duly elected people at local levels, I'm seeing in Orange County where I have commissioners, I have school board members, I have constitutional officers that are hesitant uh, yeah. to challenge the governor because they don't want to be next. And that yeah. that creates I a... Mean, that-
1: and just just to interject, but for example, in Miami-Dade County, we had this school board vote against LGBTQ History Month, which they had already approved in previous years, that all board members vote against it except the sponsor, including people who were fairly liberal, again, because they're cowardly and afraid to lose their jobs. Right. This right. is the environment yeah. that we live in now.
2: Right, and and I really urge my fellow elected officials that. To- don't pri- don't prioritize you over over people who elected you right at the end of the day, this really shouldn't be about your career this should be about what's right for the state and and it and it, and it creates this uh, environment where where even when you see an injustice when you see a problem, you're too scared to to approach it. now you know I take a lot of pride as someone who is willing to uh, call people in before I call them out and I try really hard to, build that trust and build those relationships so that we can um uh, uh, fight back collectively because i do think that's going to be key i have to remind folks all the time imagine if if you know all of us collectively came together you know whether it's the big municipalities or different coalition groups universities i get very frustrated by universities not standing up against the governor as well or the legislature but if everyone was in unison saying, you know, you've crossed this line and now we're going to pursue these next steps, right? Like if everyone collectively organized in that fashion, um, then it would be very difficult for the governor to remove leaders from five different counties, right? Like, because then it becomes like politically unpopular for him to do that, right? And so yeah. and so I get frustrated because I, I actually think that there could be a lot more, uh, uh and building across regions because, especially for the, for the municipalities, for the regions that are generators of tax revenue, Florida can't operate without us. And so, right. why are we not leveraging that authority, that power, to then challenge the status quo and to register more people to vote? I mean, it, it always drives me crazy. Like, why isn't Orange County doing like county-wide voter registration. We should be contacting every resident who isn't registered to vote and send them a form. Why are we not doing that? I, I just, you know, I don't understand. Like, I feel like county officials should be engaged in that level. Maybe maybe it's because they're worried about their own accountability. Because, I mean, as Tomas was saying, not all these Democrats are leading in the best interest. I mean, we have Democrats who voted against rent stabilization, who voted against... Uh, conservation, who vote with their corporate donors. So I think that's probably part of the problem is that you have Democrats who also don't want their districts to be more engaged because that, that could hurt their career paths. But uh, for me, I think the more people who are engaged, the better. And it's a healthier democracy long-term and it's not about me. I'm not going to be here forever. I want to build a state that's going to be secure and, and prosperous for generations to come, way beyond me. But if you're just thinking short term of, you know, my self-preservation, then you're going to make decisions that are not in the best interest of the state as a whole, that are not going to challenge the uh, undemocratic direction that we're going. And we'll continue to uh, create scenarios like affordability crises, because those are absolutely created because of neglect, but also because of corporate greed. And you need elected officials who are willing to say that and are willing to do something about it?
0: There are a lot of demographic quirks of this state, right? Like there's a down here in South Florida, we have this weird thing where we are an overwhelmingly liberal or democratic county, except we have this like streak of Cuban conservatism, right? that came, and 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 in a lot of in a lot of cases, also now Venezuela latterday Venezuelan conservatism. um as an elected official in central Florida, what are what are some of the like built in uh, obstacles that you encounter when you're trying to you know talk about these issues when you're trying to like bring people in instead of calling them out like it, it seems like we are a really quirky state and again back to our our mission here like why are we like this trying to figure out the dna of why florida is this way like w- what do you think about that like the kind of, like we're not like alabama we're not mississippi we're not some of these more like um prohibitively conservative states we're different how do you um process that
2: yeah well i'm i i'm a product of that right so i'm born and raised in orlando as a daughter of immigrants i'm first generation my parents came to this country from iran and met each other working at the same donut shop in central florida and as i grew up in uh my public schools i was always assumed to be puerto rican because i'm a person of color and there's not that many Iranians in Florida. Well, we invite
0: you to the cookout. You're welcome at the cookout. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, all my best friends were Puerto Rican. Like, that was just, it was the natural, it was a natural, you know, like comfort for me, right? To be among other people of color. And so, um, you know, and, and my values are very much uh, uh, grown from being a Florida girl. I mean, I value hard work, which is something that my parents instilled to in me, but I also witnessed that. And I witnessed that in the custodians in my school, in the my mom's co-workers at Kmart. Like it was just something that, you know, was very uh evident to me among among the working class, right? Was that uh there's 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 pride in work, you know? And and then of course, my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was a kid, and so I had a, a lot of a lot of experience with hospitals and with medical um, uh, uh, professionals and i mean it was incredibly traumatizing you know to sit next to my mom as she gets her chemotherapy treatment and um, helping uh, to change some of her uh, medications or medical devices and unfortunately she didn't make it she passed away when i was 13 years old and and then i turned to my arts and culture community in my high school. Like theater was my safe space as I navigated life without a mom and tried to figure out who did I want to be. And I remember always valuing the underdog, right? Cause my family was the underdog. And I think that's also another Florida value is, is we're, we're very anti elite in Florida. Florida doesn't have, you know, a long enough history where we have these uh, philanthropic leaders, right? There's no Rockefellers in Florida, right? Like I think college football might be, um, you know, the closest thing we have to like historic icons in Florida, right? Uh, for For the everyday person anyways, you know, obviously for those of us that study history, we have people that we admire in Florida history, but it's not something that I, you know, I think if you asked an everyday Floridian, who who in our history do you admire the most? I, I don't know. I don't know if folks folks would really think about politicians, right? Because we're not old enough, really, to have that type of legacy. But also, there's not some people who really stand out to you, right? And 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 so uh, our diversity is our strength, but our diversity is is driven by political geography. It's driven by uh, immigration. It's driven by our proximity to the Caribbean. And that creates a state with multiple different states inside. And when you think about political geography, you know there's a reason why uh, the East Coast of Florida tends to be more liberal compared to the West Coast. That is the I-95 yeah. traffic and that's the I-75 traffic. So you have Northeasterners who would come vacation in Florida, they drive down the highway, that eventually would make route here. And then you have Midwesterners who would come to nine seventy five to Naples, Fort Myers. And of course, then you have the villages, like Smack in the middle that is uh, is 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 manufactured on purpose that has really built itself to be a, a conservative um community. And so again, you know none of that is some of that is by chance. Some of that is 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 uh, uh, self-made. While others is are are dictated by policies and and um natural occurrences around us, including climate change. And so yeah. that's that 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 builds who we are. and that's why we are so different from our our sister states in the south because like we are the culmination of so many forces around us that uh, create an environment where I don't define Florida as a red state or a blue state. I always like to tell folks that we're a rainbow state, which means, we have to build a multi-class, a multi-racial, and a multi-generational coalition in order to win. That's the only way you're going to make progress in Florida. But, but what those groups have in common is a very populist mentality, right? Like anti-elite and pro-people, which is why policies like a $15 minimum wage pass statewide while Trump wins, Right. And so I, I think it's so important to elect leaders that are willing to uh, like understand those dynamics and and also, you know, build coalitions ourselves. And a part of that is challenging corporate greed. And I think that if Democrats continuously bend over backwards uh, to meet the needs of their corporate overlords, then we are never going to win in this state. Like I just think that's such an important piece of our platform is that we have to be pro people. And sometimes being pro people requires challenging corporate greed. But if you're too scared to do that because of the consequences, um, then you're not going to be able to build that coalition we need to succeed.
1: I wanted to say that we, we don't have a lot of historically good politicians in Florida, but in this podcast, we stand Ruben Askew, and, uh, and yeah, I know, <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know your sister's also a Ruben Askew uh, stand. So oh yeah, <laughs> well Ruben
2: Askew uh, for the listeners who don't know this, you know he he was a, a Democrat that uh, campaigned on a corporate income tax. And then he created, you know, with the legislature's, uh, um, support and voter approval, like creates a corporate income tax. Right. So I, again, just reaffirming the point I just made about like corporate accountability. It's a very important, but also popular issue. And to this day, you know, only, 1% 1% of Florida businesses even pay a corporate income tax. It's it's about $2.8 billion of revenue compared to sales tax, which is about 10 times as much. And so, uh, taking on corporate greed and and building structure to corporate accountability are are very important trademarks of the ASCU administration, and it should be values of the Democratic Party as a whole.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that the um, the only problem with your vision is that if we are a rainbow state, then we wouldn't be allowed to be taught in the in our own elementary schools. Yeah. Unfortunately.
2: Right, because <laughs> rainbows have been banned, and rainbows trigger yeah. Republicans. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair point. Fair point.
3: Is a lot of that due to climate change?
0: Um, yeah, ultimately, but they'll, they'll, they'll lie to you and tell you like, that's a great place to start to bring us back in. Cause we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about exactly that, right? Like it is in reality, if you talk to any of the insurance companies, the, the company line sure. and the industry line is that it's, um, litigation that it's about the, um, the, the threat of, which is true. Like there is much more, uh, unsavory or unwarranted litigation happening mm-hmm. in that space right like okay. the the guys do go around and roofers and insurance adjusters go around knocking on the door and saying hey how long has your roof been that way you know we can get you a brand new roof all we have to do is sue your insurance company and yeah that happens okay. it happens but like for example one of these guys that i want that we're going to talk about right now i believe it's uh the insurer the insurer called um UCP, I'm sorry, uh, U, yeah, UPC, United Property and and Casualty. Out of 760, they're they're, they're going to leave. They have left, and they're going to probably end up being insolvent. Um, they're leaving Florida. 760,000 um, policies, right? That 760,000 people that are scrambling right now to find uh, find a new insurance company. Most right. of them are just going to end up on Citizens, but. They're leaving, they say, because of this outrageous, crazy, out of control, um, uh, lit, uh, litigious environment, right? Where they're constantly getting sued. They had, a, they have a thousand open lawsuits. That sounds like a lot, sure, and it probably is right. super costly. But a thousand is not a huge percentage of seven hundred and sixty-one thousand. Yeah, I mean, if you told me like, oh, one fifth of all of our people are trying to of, of our policyholders are suing us, like, damn, that's crazy, man. You should get out of there. But it's not that big. And I think, Jared, to your point, it's it is climate change. They fucking yeah. but they just can't say it because if they say that we're doing this because of climate change, that everyone un- would move. Yeah. Yeah. It undoes the so much of the of of the work that they then they have to acknowledge it around. Don't forget these com- a lot of these companies are owned by larger they're subsidiaries of larger insurers that insure millions and millions of homes around the country. So then what? They've got to have like Nevada talk like, you know, their their policyholders in Nevada and Arizona and California are going to start asking about the water table there. Yeah. And, you know, yeah.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, insurance, similarly to like banking, it's based on confidence and trust. Right. Because you need people to be able to trust the system to, you know, and the insurer themselves to like be able to like have that pool of money in reserve. basically dip into it to help those in moments of crises or whatever but you know similar similarly to a run on banks if you know if enough people don't trust that pool of money to be stable they are either going to try to get their money out or in case of the insurer you know there's not going to be any 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 trust any confidence that that pool of money is sustainable and what it's revealing is that Climate change and the general direction of our, you know, society is creating conditions that are not conducive for these systems to operate as they once were. The reality is that, you know, yes, the, the the insurers in Florida are greedy. You know what I mean, and they're taking advantage of the situation. But in a way, yeah, climate change does make it really, really risky for them. To operate right. in this state. I mean, I always think about it. can you imagine if a hurricane level four or five hits Miami? Like we yeah. are done. Like the city is over. Yeah. You know, like it will be a Katrina yeah. style event.
0: Yeah, they, they talk about this. I mean, like we we saw what happened when Irma, just six years ago or five years ago, came through Miami, and we had never seen.
1: But no, hold on, yeah, but Irma didn't come through Miami. Irma came through the keys. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. It barely strafed us. Yeah, Yeah, it just we caught the edge of it. Yeah, and it fucked. And do you remember? I don't
0: know if you remember this. I I think we were all living here at the time when um I had never seen in years of living here. I had never seen brickle. Complete, uh, da- the downtown area, one of the downtown adjacent areas of Miami, um,
1: like submerged, yeah. fully submerged. The, the financial district. I couldn't district. believe it. It was just, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was a barely hurricane level one, barely, like a very weak yeah. hurricane level one that like strafed like Homestead, like the southern part of Miami-Dade County strafed it while mostly going through the Florida Keys. And it fucked this city up. Like we were flooded, infrastructure damage, power out for two, three weeks, four weeks in some parts of the county, you know, slow response times from emergency services, FPL in disarray. People, people couldn't get basic shit like ice out, you know, like it, it. Can you imagine, again, if a hurricane level three, let alone a four or like a five hits us, like a a hurricane Andrew Andrew level event, we are done. And, and you know, we can get into this in another episode, but our infrastructure is so bad because they have zoned, you know, these like luxury high rises and, you know, multi-level buildings, but they don't do anything to upgrade our sewage and water. So... You know, it rains for fucking five minutes and the streets are all flooded. So we, yeah. we're in bad shape.
0: <laughs> well, what happens, what happens when you build an entire um, state around, uh, you know, it, its regulatory environment, not around the actual realities of things that need to be regulated and like, oh, this needs to work this way. But when you configure it all around who's paying what money and like, oh, well, yeah, practically as a common sense exercise, we probably shouldn't have enormous high rises, sky, you know, skyscrapers on the water. Like, that doesn't make sense. But at some point in time, a uh, uh, George Perez related group type person started the spigot, got the spigot open and started paying for the zoning variances and started paying to build up, you know, this de- larger development plan of what we see today. There's still, if you guys go back and look through press releases of like projects that have been abandoned in the last 10 years. There's like 20 different huge high-rise Brickle Miami Beach um, or downtown projects where they were like, oh, we're going to build a fucking <laughs> – an affront to God, a 500-story, you know, monta. There was one that they had to they had to nix because they were worried about the fucking planes approaching Miami International Airport um, being like too close to it because it was so huge. And I can't help but wonder looking at that shit, are you guys living in the same city that I live in where you're like, oh, let's build – some other monstrosities all along oh there's we can, we can carve out one quarter of a block here to make another you know luxury condo uh high rise right here it, it's It's like two common senses going like diverging in a wood, like going in different directions completely and uh I, I think that to transition into this segment, one of the things that we we want to do is that's a that's a huge question like who's responsible for that but we can talk a little bit more about like who we can kind of name and shame a little bit more who we've um been talking about in this episode which is the insurance companies right the insurance industry would have you believe that they're just hemorrhaging cash in this state and that they're scurrying away tails between their legs beaten bruised broke broken uh but I'll tell you two groups of folks who aren't broke and that is the executives and the investors for these companies is one of my favorite things to do. It's kind of cope for me. Like it's it's a way that like I uh, like process a lot of this shit when bad things happen. Um, I like to just whenever I encounter free market failures that almost always inevitably screw over the average person. Um, I love to log into one of my favorite premium public information databases and find the home addresses of the people getting rich off of the misery of others. And then plug those addresses into Google or Zillow or Redfin and just get a look at, you know, these merchants of misery, like where they get to go home at night and kind of lay their heads. And
3: David, are you like the joker for insurance companies?
0: (laughs) 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 And here we go. (laughs) So um, I did that with some of the insurance company. Yeah, yes, Jar, I, I am well, nice. Uh, I'm trying to remember <laughs> some Joker lines, but like they've golfed, But I've beaten them all out of my head. I, what if I did some Jared later later Joker lines? Yeah, get <laughs>
1: like, get a get a tattoo uh, that says um, starts basket case or whatever.
0: Da- damaged, yeah, damaged. <laughs> Yeah, you guys think that that's funny until I start sending you both um like used condoms like he did to to his co-stars on that. Oh, one. <laughs>
3: instead of instead of damage, it should be uninsured across uninsured. your forehead. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> David, you should you should you should do that line in uh in Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. What do you get when you cross oh, the yeah. Miami <laughs> homeowner with property insurance that <laughs> abandons him and treats him like trash? <laughs>
0: You think that you think that the, you think that 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 backgrounding these people and getting pictures of their homes you think that that's a you think it's funny I, I do, do and I'm and tired I'm of, tired pretending, of it's not-
1: pretending it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's So
0: let's get started with the CEO of the actual insurance company that dropped me. Is this one a little bit personal? Yeah, um, it is. But oh well. Um, let's have a look at the home of Centauri CEO, Richard Espino, uh, in Bradenton, Florida. Again, I'm not going to give the, um, you know, at home addresses or anything of these guys, but boom. So yeah, there's, there's, there's Richard's home. It is a 3.3 million, four dollar, four bedroom, four bathroom, 4,400 square foot, two story. It looks like, uh, near Jupiter, Florida. Now he recently, um, sold this home. And moved to Texas, so uh, this, along with abandoning Florida, maybe he couldn't get insurance for it. Who knows? But yeah, this is this is um, this is this is Richard Espino's home. What what? Uh, Jerry, I know you have a huge a, a great design eye. What what, what do you see looking <laughs> at? This is like I see the kind home of, of a legitimate, legitimate
3: businessman. This yeah, this looks like a, like the headquarters for. You know like in the James Bond movie where he's tracking the villain but turns out that villain was just working for a bigger guy. This is <laughs> the home of that middle guy yep, who like right, yep. Daniel Craig has to go and kill him and then finds out this guy was only working for an even larger more nefarious guy. Yeah, this looks like your he's been yeah.
1: But then but then James Bond gets drone striked Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs>
0: Let me tell you, I, I said um red redfin and Zillow, but um this guy's this address, I this this um this photo, I had to do some homework to find this one because it, a lot of the photos that you in, in the sources where you would normally find them um are suspiciously absent. Like this was a result of some investigative work finding this photo of this property. It is not easy to um find pictures. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it is not easy to find pictures of Richard Espino's uh Bradenton, Florida home. Um, but I was able to find this one. So I we should be all lucky. We consider ourselves lucky. Like it's it's almost like being invited into his house, I would mm-hmm. say. There looks like a middle balcony
3: area, like where he can stand over his driveway like the Pope stands over the like Vatican <laughs> Square. Like it it's it's very nefarious looking.
0: This is probably like one of my worst um like being raised in American capitalism traits is that I would love to have a driveway like that like I, I, I know that he probably had to kill like five you know species yeah. of of, uh, of Cuban tree frogs or some shit like that to, to to make it happen but like that that I would love to have a huge cobblestone driveway like that that's the, I, I mean yeah. I only have one car but who knows if I was that rich the I really would is, I, I will
1: say the, the cobblestone aesthetic is nice but it doesn't really fit with the home. No. No,
0: the home is super ultra modern.
1: Yeah. It's weird.
0: Huh? Up next, as we leave Richard to, you know, enjoy. You know, you know what? Let me just say one more thing about this house. At least a little bit of it is mine. Because I paid this guy, what, two thousand bucks a year for like seven years? To just get like unceremoniously dumped. And then he abandoned Fuck, you. He abandoned yeah. me. <laughs> Up next. Is a much more sort of modest home, but appearances can be deceiving because this home is located right here in Miami, Florida, which means that it's about 60% more expensive than it should be. It is the home of the CEO of Weston Insurance, uh, which recently declared insolvency and left 22,000 policyholders in the lurch. Um, Deanne Nixon. Uh, Miss Nixon is a fellow Miamian. This this house is actually very close to me. Um, I'm not going to say where. Because I'm also not gonna dox myself. But guys, this is what uh this is what 1.3 million dollars in Miami gets you. It is four bedroom, three bathroom, twenty seven hundred square feet. Um, a very modest ranch home, actually, but uh not one that you would that either of any of us on this phone call would be able to afford to purchase.
1: Speak no. speak for yourself, losers. Right, oh.
0: Thomas <laughs> still has like a bunch of um of Argentinian pesos in his yeah. in in that apartment somewhere, like in, a, in a, he's yeah. he's waiting for the rebound. Yeah. For every the, time
3: he goes up to Tallah- every time he goes up to Tallahassee, he brings some of DeSantis's uh, gold back home with him.
1: The the Argentinian <laughs> peso is my personal version of the Iraqi dinar. <laughs> You're like it's, it's coming, probably, it's <laughs> coming back one of these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys, I
0: want you to meet Daniel Peed which is a great name, C- cool, CEO man. of United property. And <laughs> <Casualty> <laughs> uh, he is Daniel. Da- Mr. Pede is the, is the, um, hell yeah. is the, uh, CEO of United property and casualty insurance. Whose company tagline is keeping the promise. Apparently that promise, uh, included fucking over the 761,000 policyholders, <laughs> Um, that UPC has in Florida piecing out um, at, of not just Florida, but Louisiana and Texas as of August. Amoral? Sure. But check out what 761,000 fucked over homeowners can buy you fellas. Look at that. Ah, Look at that. So this is the peace house. Is the pee- that <laughs> this yeah. is the piss house.
1: It's a horrible yeah. home. <laughs> Yeah, this is like
3: textbook McMansion. Like the other home, we were talking about like one guy. All right, so first house. Let let me me give a little context.
0: Would the two of you be surprised to find out that this home, this million-dollar-plus home, $1.2 million, is a five-bedroom, five-bathroom, 5,000-square-foot home, is located in, uh, I believe, suburban Houston, Texas.
1: That makes total sense. That, that is a house I that would
0: you,
3: 100% believe yeah, it is. That is, that Yeah, that is
1: a very Houston home, like Houston McMansion home. Like, yeah, that makes total sense. It like – it. I don't think it actually looks like it, but for some reason, it reminds me of the house like that the Osbournes used to be shot in. I don't know. Oh it my just God, has just that yeah. cheap, weird reality TV like McMansion. Yes. Live. Oh, yes, yeah. Yes,
0: absolutely. Completely. I see that. Oh, cool. Yeah. This I vaguely remember that this show, loo- fuck man.
3: This looks like uh like you said like like they were like shooting like for like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. And all the other homes turned them down, and this home said yes. No, that this is the backup,
0: lie. backup. The
3: production yeah, the other, team yeah. is like all the
1: other homes were like we don't we, we can't get property insurance, so we you know yeah. They, we, so we if anything to happens that. to
0: you, we'd be liable.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: No, it's like it's when you're it's when you're location scouting, and you're like, okay, well, these three are professionally managed, and um, you know, but but they're all booked, so we have to go with this one that like it's just some guy and he's like renting his place, place out. And that's like, and there's a bunch of weird rules. Like we can't have juice in the living room after six or something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was the, um the, the home of it, like, I'll, I'll say this about UPC. Cause I've been following this issue and you guys know, I've been like kind of steeped in this, in this fucking thing. It's become my little personal hobby horse. The last couple of months, UPC is probably the, the, the biggest offender on this list. Like what they did Like, you know, what they did relative to what their market value is, the ability that they could have had to, like, not fuck over almost a million people, like, is is a lot of these other people, what you see are they're like, they're either subsidiaries or they're smaller companies that became insolvent and... And yelling at them is like yelling at your dog when your dog dies. It doesn't do any good. It's like, yeah, the dog died, man. What are you going to do? Like, But this one is one of the – this this UPC company is probably one of the more egregious examples of the corporate greed that we're talking about. Um, which brings us to our last one. Uh, I, I want you guys to meet Robert McHale. Robert McHale runs St. James Insurance Group, which was up until recently – the, the the majority shareholder and managing principal of St. John's Insurance Company, which was based in Orlando, um, until recently, Mc, Mr. McCahill lived in this plush Windermere estate just outside of um, outside of Orlando. So there's a good look again with the Pope balconies. Yeah. I'm noticing a type with these guys. This one, I believe, is pretty close to. I don't know. Did either of you ever watch the um, the documentary, The Queen of Versailles? No. Okay, so that was about the woman who was married to the guy that owns Westwood Group. Westwood Group was, and might still be, the largest um, stateside, in the United States, the largest uh, timeshare company in the world, or in the United States. And her, the documentary centered on, it was a brilliant documentary. I recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it, where she, her plan was to make the biggest most ostentatious single family home in the United States. And she got very far into that process with her husband financing it, obviously when 2008 happened and the entire bottom of the um, uh, timeshare market fell out and the documentary was already in effect as sort of a PR tool for their family. And, um, and it became a different documentary when the financial crisis happened. It became about like these people living in this cavernous half-built mansion who barely had enough money for groceries anymore and were like hounded on all ends by debtors. And it's a great fun documentary to watch. It's it's really good. But this house is right nearby in that area where, where where that where that movie was made.
3: Of the houses we've looked at, if you were to say these these houses are all owned by insurance company CEOs. I would say this one is the most normal. Like, this is the most, like, two type. Yeah. Like, okay, I could see, which makes me want, because it's so normal, it makes me wonder what or who is in the basement. Like, could it be, like, the files of people who they fucked over?
0: Could it be a deranged nephew? Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Th- but I, I have a thought on that. D- the, just want to get the get the get the metrics out <laughs> because this is a five bedroom, seven bathroom, seven thousand eight hundred sixty two square foot uh, home um, that actually just sold three days ago for six point nine million dollars. So they are getting the fuck out of Florida, Jerry. They're they're following your lead, um, mm. uh, the the Cahill family. I want to just like bring up one point before we close, and you touched on it a little bit there, Gerald is like I've been doing background checks and in a sort of journalistic capacity, like finding people, getting public records about people, trying to build composite like informational bios about people without being able to talk to them for a really long time. I've used a lot of different tools to do it. This particular class of people, because I looked at maybe six or seven other people too. This is the slipperiest, Hardest to pin down class of people that I've ever done any background more than politicians, more than public figures, more than celebrities. These people have their existences structured in a way where it is like trying to pick apart a fucking Delaware, you know, uh, LLC. It is so hard to figure out exactly where they like where they live, where they live. They, these are multinational people, multi state people. These are people that exist in a world that's different than us they are rootless they are in airplanes half the time they are in private jets half the time they are those those like when you watch like hbo prestige dramas about rich people like fucking succession and you're like oh well one second they're in uh you know they're in bali and then, then the next second they're in you know lake charles or whatever like they that's what these people are and it made it so much more difficult to find where they fucking la- lay their head but um, but not that much more difficult
3: that's all for this episode of why are we like this be sure to follow us on apple podcast for more episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts visit us at wawlt.com follow us on twitter Nerd. at walt show and on tiktok at walt show you can walt. also email us at Walt at allpointswest.net. Until next time, this was Why Are We Like This? Walt, 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 Walt. Walt Mafia Rising. <laughs>